what God has to say. Welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard and not be satisfied with just a little shallow religion. As this series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, from friends, from others, all influenced by Elizabeth's message and her life. Today we wrap up our short series on the therapeutic movement with What God Has to Say. Later on, we'll take a look at two great hymns of the faith, To God Be the Glory and Great is Thy Faithfulness. We'll hear from authors Janet and Jeff Benge about why they wrote about Elizabeth. Have you ever had some shocking news come to you? Imagine if you had been Jim Howard, Elizabeth's brother. He'll talk about when he first heard about Jim Elliot's death. That's later on. First, though, let's wrap up our series, The Therapeutic Movement. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, discussing again today the therapeutic movement. Let me read to you the prediction of how things are going to be in the last days. This is from 2 Timothy 3. Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Does that describe the days we're living in? It certainly does. I can't think of a more accurate description. But, of course, it was written as a warning to the young Timothy from the Apostle Paul, assuming that they were going to find that these things were happening and that they were themselves in the last days, which, of course, they weren't, and we don't know that we are either. But that list is descriptive of America, at least. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then in Ephesians 4, there's a description of the differences between the old and the new self. When I hear people talking about learning to love themselves, I want to ask them, which self are you talking about? This distinction is rarely made, but it's very clear in the Bible. It says in Ephesians 4, 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in their futility of their thinking. And of course, Paul uses the word Gentiles as to mean all those who are not Jews. And he's writing to Jews. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught of him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And I would add here that I think one of the most deceitful desires that has been instilled in people's hearts today is the desire for a good self-image, to feel good about ourselves. And he calls this deceitful. He says to be made new. We are to be made new in the attitude of our minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Not esteem, but righteousness, the putting away of sin, the aiming toward being like God, like Jesus Christ. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. And he goes on with many other things that will be done by those who are honest and serious about wanting to follow God. Again, I want to read to you from Kirk Kilpatrick's book, Psychological Seduction. He says, some of the psychologists that he knows talk credulously of astral projection, reincarnation, the non-reality of matter, and the transcendent spirit of oneness. Kilpatrick says, much of the philosophy behind this is muddled and amateurish. But it does prove one point. In and of itself, psychology is not a satisfactory vision. Here are experts who have access to the most sophisticated and rational analysis psychology has to offer. And they prefer instead to practice yoga and meditation and consult with mediums and gurus. This growing, quote, spiritual, unquote, trend within psychology can be taken as a further corroboration of the point with which I began this chapter. It pays Christianity the compliment of admitting what Christians have maintained all along. We need to get ourselves on a different level. It's not surprising, then, that psychology would sooner or later also come up with its own version of the born-again experience. The best example of this is the encounter group with its remarkable claim of exchanging old lives for new and the equally remarkable emotionalism that attends it. It is as if a camp meeting were whisked out from its tent and set down in an upholstered conference room and the preacher transformed by some sleight of hand into a group leader. In encounter groups, people confess their sins, 
share fellowship, claim to feel the workings of the Spirit, and come out anxious to convert others to their way. In addition to encounter groups are the countless self-help books, pamphlets, and advertisements that promise new life, new personality, and psychological rebirth. They beat upon the brain like the noise of breakers and carry a similar force. Minds are swept before these promises like pebbles in surf. And like a determined surfer, the mind keeps going back for more. One thing I think is certain. When wrapped in the garments of psychology, the idea of being born again takes on a respectability that is not granted to Christian belief. The psychological society can believe what it wants with impunity. Sensing this, Christians will sometimes strive for a similar relevancy in the presentation and practice of the faith. That is a danger, isn't it? We're always hoping that we can make ourselves relevant, and that so often leads to compromise, to a watering down of the truth of God. Reading on, but whether the spirit that animates these psychological conversions is related to the Holy Spirit is a question that Christians must carefully ponder. Some Christians have been too quick to notice the similarities between Christianity and born-again psychology, and too slow to notice the differences, with the result that many church activities have taken on a distinctively encounter-group flavor, and group methods have begun to substitute for Christian practice. There are traps laid here for the unwary Christian, and one of them is the mistaken notion that spiritual progress is basically a matter of holding hands and hugging and feeling good about people. That is not what Christ meant when he instructed Nicodemus to be born again. Even supposing the claims for radical personality change to be true, we must remember that encounter is still nothing more than secular salvation. It does not usher us into the kingdom of heaven. The same applies to the more modest goals of professional psychology, adjustment, personality integration, better functioning. Good things, yes, but you can have them and still be no better off in the eyes of heaven than a man mumbling lunacies in an asylum. You remember the story of Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus by night, presumably because he didn't want to be seen associating with this strange and apparently very radical rabbi. And he asked Jesus a crucial question. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus said. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. What God has to say. The wrap-up to our five-part look at the therapeutic movement. Janet and Jeff Bench wrote about Elizabeth Elliot, and they'll talk about why they did. Also, later in this uh, time together, Jim Howard, brother of Elizabeth, talks about that first time that he heard 
that Jim Elliott had been killed in their outreach to the Alcas. That's later on. First, though, let's hear from YWAM authors Janet and Jeff Bench. The impetus, I think, to write this book came from our publisher, uh, YWAM Publishing, who uh, some of you may not know that a lot of our books are sold into the homeschool market. So at homeschool conventions, they were getting a lot of people asking, well, are we going to write about Elizabeth Elliot? And so they came to us and said, look, come. there could be a lot of pe- lot of interest in a book about Elizabeth, so would you consider writing it for the series? Which we said, yeah, sure, we will go and do that. Uh, so we, we wrote the book, and I think the interesting thing for me about the book was that it gave us a chance to go beyond the end of uh, Jim's book and uh, Nate Saint's book, where we wrap up the book because the books are about their life and soon afterwards. So it gave us a chance then to go on deeper into the story of the Warani. And uh, we had to do a lot more research and a lot of interesting things that delved into, well, what were the consequences afterwards and about going into that place? So I enjoyed, I think, the challenge that that also brought with the story. And I think, too, um, there wasn't that I know of a book uh, for middle and high school kids that really told the whole story of Elizabeth's life. And uh, I think it really resonated particularly with young girls. And it was a, a really good choice. Authors Janet and Jeff Bench talking about why they wrote about Elizabeth. Later on, Elizabeth's brother, Jim Howard, talks about the first time he heard about the death of Jim Elliott. Was that a traumatic time? Wait and hear about it coming later. You know, when you have those uh, moments in life that set you back, that make you wonder uh, what God is doing, aren't you glad that you can remind yourself great is his faithfulness? Right now, look at those great hymns of the faith. To God be the glory, and great is thy faithfulness. Many of you know of Fanny Crosby, born in 1820, a great hymn writer who wrote some of our favorite hymns, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, Oh, What a Foretaste of Glory Divine, Heir of Salvation, Purchase of God, Born of His Spirit, Washed in His Blood. Another hymn that she wrote is Rescue the Perishing, Another one which I think is particularly poignant in view of the fact that Fanny Crosby was blind was the hymn Face to Face with Christ my Savior. When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Since she had never seen a human face, that stanza becomes even more poignant to me as I think of the fact that she was looking forward to seeing the face of Jesus. When she was only six weeks old, she got an inflammation in her eyes. The doctor put hot poultices on them and burned the corneas, permanently blinding the baby. Fanny Crosby became a popular lecturer, an organist, a pianist, and at age 38 married a blind musician and composer whom she had taught at the New York Institute for the Blind. They had only one child, and that child died. 
But at age nine, Fanny Crosby, the little blind girl, wrote these words. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot, nor I won't. I hope that there are some children listening to me today, children who will appreciate that poem, and I would hope you will make her purpose in life yours as well. She is enjoying the blessings that she has, even though she has the great handicap of blindness, and she just refuses to weep and sigh because she's blind. Now, some of you have been complaining, maybe even crying, and whining to your parents today about some very little thing that you didn't like. Well, you're not blind. Somebody that's listening to me is blind, but most of you have your sight. Have you ever thought about thanking God for eyes? Think about what you can see. Well, you can see everything, can't you? And a blind person can't see anything. Think about the birds and the trees and the flowers and most of all the faces of people that you love, people that you're talking to. Fanny Crosby was blind all her life and she died when she was in her 90s. She wrote, among other great praiseful hymns, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Great things he hath taught us, great things he hath done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. And the chorus is a wonderful lilting tune with these words, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice, O come to the Father through Jesus the Son, and give him the glory, great things he hath done. And speaking of how great God is, the second hymn that I want to mention today is a favorite with many of you, great is thy faithfulness. Lars and I were in Rochester and Syracuse, and Janet Brown was the soloist. I don't think I will ever forget her rendition of this beautiful hymn. She began with that high E flat, great is thy faithfulness, the last phrase of the chorus, and she held that word great, pure, clear like a bell, like a lark, beginning with that word great and holding the note, and then is thy faithfulness Lord unto me. I think of the days when I was a student in high school in Florida. At a little school that was in Orlando at the time, and one day the headmistress had called me into her room and had done what we used to call reamed, steamed, and dry cleaned me. She really raked me over the coals for something that I had done. I've forgotten now what it was, but it must have been awful. And I was so demolished, so ashamed of myself, 
so filled with guilt, I felt as if I would never come out of the black hole into which she seemingly had flung me. And the next morning, in our regular school chapel, the hymn that was chosen was, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I had never thought very much about the words of that third stanza, but I think about them every time I sing that hymn now. And I think about that day as I sat in that sunny chapel, feeling so utterly miserable, and the comfort that came to me through these words, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Someone listening to me today needs pardon for sin and that peace that has fled from you because of your sin. Is it possible that the Lord stands ready to give to us once again his presence, his own dear presence to cheer and to guide? It is. It's not only possible, but it's true. That's what the cross is about. We bring those sins no matter how bad. I don't know what your sin may be. You don't know what my worst ones are. God knows. And you know what? The grace of God is like an ocean. And there is absolutely no way that your sin can exhaust the supply of that grace. No sin is too great to be covered by that blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Bible says, cleanses us from all sin. And that's what I experienced that morning. I can remember sitting on those bent wood chairs in the chapel, you know, those old-fashioned sort of ice cream store chairs. There were orange gauze curtains at the window. And the sun was slanting through those curtains, and we had just sung lustily these words. I don't remember anything that was said in chapel that morning. I don't remember who spoke. It was usually the headmaster, Dr. DeBose. What I do remember so vividly was the promise that there was pardon for my sin, that there would be peace, and that God had not withdrawn from me his own dear presence. Now, I was only 14 years old. I was not an advanced saint. I don't know where you are in your spiritual pilgrimage. Perhaps you haven't even begun it yet. I would suggest that you come to him who promises to cleanse you with the blood that he himself shed on the cross of Calvary. Come, tell him about your sin, ask him for his forgiveness. And when he forgives you, you must receive it. I hear people talking about forgiving themselves. You know, I cannot even imagine ever being able to forgive myself. I don't have to forgive myself. God is the only one who can truly forgive, and it is his forgiveness that I must receive. Maybe when some people say they can't forgive themselves, what they really mean is they can't really believe that God has forgiven them. Well, you've got to go back to the Bible. Find out that he has promised, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I love the second stanza of this great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, telling about some of the signs of his faithfulness. Have you thought about the fact that summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Two great hymns of the faith, to God be the glory, and great is thy faithfulness. You know, in times of stress and trauma and loss, you want to know that God is still faithful, don't you? Here's Jim Howard, brother of Elizabeth, to tell us when he first heard about the death of Jim Elliot at the hands of those that he was trying to reach, the Alka people. I well remember those days. I was a sophomore in high school at the time, and I was attending a Christian boarding school in Florida, not far from Orlando at the time. I was uh, still living. My home was still New Jersey, but my parents sent me to that school. I was following in the footsteps of four of my brothers and sisters who had preceded me at that school. And uh, January 8th, 1956, was the day that my brother-in-law and the others were killed. And uh, that morning, I came into the kitchen at the boarding school to do my worksheet job, which at that particular time was waiting on tables for the meal, the breakfast coming up. So as I walked in the kitchen, the cook, whose name was Bob Lang, uh, said to me, Jimmy, which is what people called me at that time, uh, I just heard something on the radio about a plane crash in the jungle of Ecuador, and it's just possible that some people on that plane were related to you. Well, I knew nothing about what he was talking about, uh, but of course, as news filtered out, then I began to put together what he'd heard. That was on some national news that he'd heard that. Then the facts came, became clear, but by bit, and it uh, wasn't a plane crash, of course, but there was an airplane involved, which had been piloted by Nate Saint, the missionary pilot who was among the men killed. The president of the school where I was, Dr. DeBose is his name, uh, spoke, I think, in one of our chapel services, perhaps that day, and he read a telegram that had come to, I think, to my parents from my sister Elizabeth, and it consisted of three words, perfect peace phrase. And I recall hearing that, I have a vivid recollection of that, hearing that read aloud in the chapel. So then I recall very shortly after that, being out in the patio area in the evening where we had a Sunday evening supper at the boarding school. And I was off to one side, a little bit alone at the time, and thinking about my brother-in-law's death. And I remember telling the Lord at that moment, uh, thank you for his faithfulness to the Lord all the way to death. 
And I want to be faithful in serving you, Lord, the way Jim was. So those were thoughts in which I wanted to respond to the Lord myself when I began to realize what had happened, what had just happened. Brother of Elizabeth, that was Jim Howard. Hey, it looks like our time together is just about over, but hey, thanks for letting us come in to your home, your office, or maybe along with you as you took a walk, wherever we found you today. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out elizabethelliot.org. elizabethelliot.org. More talks, Gateway to Joy programs, and other resources. ElizabethElliot.org. And thanks for listening. Be sure to leave us a review sometime. One reviewer says, Elizabeth Elliot is such an inspiration to me. She shares so much truth and has helped to reveal many mysteries to me. No sugarcoating, straight to the point. Friend, thank you for considering leaving a review for us as well. Until next time, may God remind you each and every day you're loved with an everlasting love. Underneath are the everlasting arms 